Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to At the End of the Day, the podcast. I'm Hannah Sung. In every episode, I speak with friends who have stories and experiences that I like to learn from. And today, I'm speaking with Roly Pemberton, also known as rapper Cadence Weapon. I first met him while I was working at Much Music in Toronto many years ago. And the idea back then of Canada's next big rap star being a teenager from Edmonton, I have to tell you, people were surprised and very excited about him and excited about his talent. And then at just 23 years old, he became Edmonton's Poet Laureate, and he's created five albums so far in his career, being shortlisted multiple times for the Polaris Music Prize, which celebrates artistic merit. And well, Roly won the Polaris last year for his latest album, Parallel World, which was a huge win, especially when you know what he went through during those in-between years. Last July, Roly published an essay that told the story of the deal he signed with his first record label when he was just a teenager, before the days of searching up information on the internet. It turned out to be a terrible deal. And Roly went public with his experience last year, and we talk about it today, because what I want to know from him is how he perseveres. And maybe there's something there for us all to take away. Roly's got a new memoir. It's called Bedroom Rapper, which I enjoyed so much. And we talk about that today, too. Here's my conversation with Roly Pemberton, a.k.a. Cadence Weapon. Hi, Roly. I'm so excited to do this today. Yeah, me too. I've been looking forward to this. So first, I just have to start off by saying... It feels strangely deja vu to speak with you because <laughs> I think of you as someone whose career I've kind of watched from afar because we, as like very young people, found ourselves in like the same milieu. I was like interviewing you when you were like this teenage rapper on the cover of, you know, our local papers and stuff. And now look at us all grown up. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I must say that I think we're both looking pretty much the same. I will take that. And you absolutely do. Yeah. So, okay. Your memoir, which by the way, you know, your publisher approached me to blurb it. And I was just so thrilled to do that because it meant that I got to read it in advance, which I loved. And there's a picture of you on the cover as just a little guy. How old are you? Like six? Yeah, I would be like six or seven Mm -hmm. in that photo. Extremely adorable. Can we start off with you telling us about, you know, what kind of a kid were you? Yeah, so I was very nerdy. I was really (laughs) into video games. I wanted to make video games at first. That was a big thing for me. But, you know, strangely enough, I started really getting into the music from them. And at the same time, I was really into rap music. And my dad was a hip hop DJ back in Edmonton. So I learned a lot from him. And I feel like It was a combination between the rap and wanting to rap over music from video games. I think that's like kind of an early influence of mine. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I was a very insular 
very shy kind of collector. I've always been a bit of a collector. You know, I used to collect comic books. I used to collect Pokemon cards. I used to collect different <laughs> video games and magazines. And then it became collecting CDs. Maybe becoming a DJ in your later years was a natural because you collect. I mean, I guess as a DJ, you've got to collect vinyl. Oh, I do. I'm like a heavy vinyl collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, but not even just vinyl, too. Like, I treat MP3s the same way. I, I have all these old files from, like, the early 2000s that wow. you know, I, wouldn't be able, I wouldn't be able to find again, you know, that are very precious to me. That's so cool. And indeed, slightly nerdy. I love it. <laughs> oh, it's super nerdy. I'm very proud of being a nerd these days. It wasn't it wasn't so cool when I was a kid, I guess. But now it's revenge of the nerds time. <laughs> well, I feel like being nerdy just means that you have like a deep love for something. Like you need to follow that passion. Yeah, it's about being really enthusiastic about something, being really excited. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you mentioned MP3s, and I'm thinking a lot about internet culture as I think about your career. And you started off by writing your raps rather than performing them. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I first started out as what we used to call a text C, not an MC. <laughs> we were I was a text C. Can you spell that? T-E-X-T-C-E-E. Gotcha. Text C. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I used to go on these different message boards. Like there's one in particular on rapmusic.com. Basically, I was just, what's a place that has rappers on it? And it was like rapmusic.com. <laughs> and um, I went on the message board there and I would just write my rhymes, type them up and compete with other people on who had the best verses. And whether it was, you know, an actual like battle where we were like kind of dissing each other. Sometimes it would be who could write the best story or the best like narrative thing. And for me, that was like a really big creative environment for me where I really honed my lyrical skills. Did you ever think you would keep it on the page when you were imagining what you would be like as an adult and what you would do for a living? Or did you always know that you would be a rapper? No, I didn't know that I would be a rapper. I mean, I had a real passion for rap music that was just all encompassing. You know, I definitely would describe it as obsessive. The more I would write my rhymes and then eventually I started rapping them, I started listening to the entire canon of hip hop. Like I just listened to every rap record I could find. Then I found like more underground rap that was just more to my taste at the time. And it was just this constant journey of exploration of hip hop, you know, and it got to the point where it seemed inevitable that I would put out records. Let's talk about, oh, there's just like one little funny tidbit. I realized you got your first thrill of being a published writer in the same way I did, which is that you wrote a letter to your favorite publication and then the letter to the editor got published. Your favorite publication was GamePro Magazine, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. video game magazine. And (laughs) mine was the Toronto Star, even though I was a child because I was absolutely (laughs) a nerd like you. And Rolly, I know you're probably laughing because your partner is a reporter for the Toronto Star. Yes. And, yeah. yes. That is very nerdy, though. I love that. <laughs> it's the truth. So fast forward a little bit through your teenage years, although I hate to do it. I, I just got to say for any reader out there who wants to read your memoir, that section was so fun for me to read all about your childhood. I really loved it. Your family stories growing up in Edmonton. It was just such a great section. 
But if we fast forward a little bit right now and kind of get to when your career took off, tell me about that period, for example, where we would have shared space when you were first finding yourself on TV. You know, how old were you and what did that feel like? Yeah. So around that time, I would have been like 18, 17, 18. Those were the first times I ever went to Toronto. You know, that was a big deal for me coming from Edmonton. Getting interviewed by you was a big deal for me because it's like, I used to watch her on the TV. <laughs> I was like, man, I, re I really made it. I'm talking to the, the VJs right now. This is crazy. It was really exciting. It, it just felt like there was just a new discovery every day, whether it was record stores that had hip hop singles at them. We didn't have that in Edmonton at the time. Mm. So going to somewhere like Play the Record, that was revolutionary for me. I just have to say, like, you were excited to be there. But, you know, all of my colleagues and I were very excited about you. We were like, who's this kid straight out of Edmonton? Like, <laughs> you felt so different. We were all very excited by your talent and loved your energy and your vibe. And then if we fast forward even more, you know, I, I mentioned that I was kind of watching your career and noticed you were DJing. And then it was last year that I read this essay that just blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the process of writing this essay about the exploitative record label contract that you were kind of trapped in. Yeah. So when I wrote that essay in my newsletter, it wasn't like I had been really thinking of doing it for a while. It, it was just spontaneous. It's, it's kind of weird. Wow. It's just, I woke up one day and I was just like, I feel like talking about this. And it had this really big impact. But really, just to explain the situation, mm -hmm. for my first three records, the label I was on at the time, we were in what is considered a 360 deal, which means basically the label also functions as your management. And they also take a cut of everything, whether it's merch or your show fees, record sales, all that stuff is going to the same entity, basically. But what was happening in my situation was it would be suggested to me that, you know, oh, I still had to break even on the cost of making these albums or the expense for traveling. Cause like I was playing hundreds of shows a year and traveling all around Europe, going all over the place. And the thing about it is it just happened incrementally. Like it wasn't like that obvious at first, but as the years went by, I wasn't really making any money and there was no explanation as to why I wasn't getting any accounting. I would ask for it and I'd get ignored or people would say, don't worry about it, you know? And then it would be like, oh, I have to go play Glastonbury. So it was just always, there was another thing. And, it, and eventually it just kind of felt like they kept moving the goalposts where it's like, I haven't paid off these albums yet, you know? And it, it just was something that went on really for 10 years of my career. So oh. it was just something that I, I really needed to express at that time. I think I was a little inspired by Britney Spears, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, just seeing her situation and learning more about it. I was really actually triggered by it. I was like, wow, I really relate to this. I just saw her bravery in dealing with it. And I was just like, I need to speak my truth as well. I wouldn't have made the leap to guess that until, you know, but when you say it, it makes sense because the more your star rose, same as Britney, the more you were trapped. And you just mentioned Glastonbury, one of the biggest festivals on the planet. And between 2006 and 2007, you played 140 shows. You didn't see a cent. No. Yeah, exactly. At that time, I, it seems like to everyone in my life that my career is going really well. I have that appearance of success, but then it's like, at the same time, I'm just struggling. 
I'm really barely pay rent. And it just seemed like this was totally unprofessional, really convoluted, bad situation. I think it, I, I, I don't want to remove the responsibility from them totally because they had a fiduciary duty to look out for my best interests as my managers. But I do feel like they just got in over their heads, where it's this thing where it's a super small label, literally two to three people like trying to run a label with all these other artists. And then also my career, which was going really well. But then things just kept piling up, piling up. It just was a total disaster. Mm -hmm. It felt like I was working all the time and just never benefiting from it at all. Clearly, that just seems so unfair. To get back to the theme of like what I really love to learn from you and you know how you did it, like how did you persevere? How did you not get consumed by anger? I would be so mad. Yeah, I mean, I definitely was angry about it. But I think from the very beginning, when it comes to making this music, it was my passion. It's an art form to me. And I would, clearly would do it for free. So I think my focus wasn't so much on how am I going to start profiting from this, but how am I going to be able to just make music in a freer way that is more emotionally satisfying for me? That was always my driving factor. Mm -hmm. Whereas like not, not coming from a place of anger. Yeah. Like that, that's just not how I roll. I try to be empathetic to people's situation. You know, I still am not really that angry about it because I feel like it had to happen. It was supposed to happen to me. I feel like it made me the artist I am today and made me the person I am today. And it allowed me to write this book, really. I feel like that's one of the most important things that I'll ever do in my career is write this book. If I can help younger artists never have to go through what I went through, then my job is done. Has anybody ever come up to you to say, wow, I learned so much from what you just shared publicly? Oh, tons of people. To the original post in my newsletter, people were like hitting me in my DMs like crazy. And it wasn't just artists, but it was also like people from the industry, people who were managers who felt guilty about what they had done. Wow. It was really weird. I became this, uh, you know, it was like a confessional. People having their own kind of existential crisis about what they'd done in the industry. Huh. Yeah. You just put up a big mirror to them. Yeah. That must have been so jarring for everyone and very weird for you to be on the receiving end of those messages. Yeah. And also it's like part of the reason why I wrote it at the time I did is that I felt like I had regained my stature from years before. And I got to a point where I felt more solidified as an artist where, okay, I can just be open about this and I don't care about the consequences. It became this thing where it's like I already hit bottom. And when I, when I did, I didn't have a record label. I didn't have a booking agent. I didn't have PR. I didn't have any of the stuff that you need to be an artist. And then I hit the bottom and I looked up and I was like, oh, well, I didn't die. You know, it wasn't the end of my life. It made me think, okay, well, let's, let's start this thing over. And yeah. it's just always in my life, I've always felt like anything I believed I could do, anything I try, I, I, I put everything into it, you know, that kind of obsessive mind state that came to collecting records is the same way I think about everything. So I just went super hard where I just tried to do things like book my own festivals. I'd be reaching out to festivals just like as an artist, reaching out to venues and just try and put on my own shows, like cold calling booking agents and just trying to make connections. And eventually I got a booking agent. It was an incremental thing. It was like every day I'd have these little successes. 
every moment. Like I felt like I was on the right path and it took years really to, to get to the point where I was putting out another album. And for a long time, I was thinking like people wouldn't want to see me again or something. You know, there's this idea in the music industry where there's an obsession with newness, you know, mm. where there's this thing where, oh, we only want to know like, but the new young artists or whatever. And I felt like in my own mind, it was like I'd totally fallen off and who would care if I come back. But then I looked and people were really excited to see me back. And Canadian music industry had changed a lot since I had left and became a more diverse place and a place that was more amenable to the kind of music I was making. And it has worked out pretty well so far. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So you just released this memoir, you had a book launch, and then you had an after party. I was at the after party, you DJed it. It was so fun. And I have to say that like after the pandemic and being on a dance floor, and not just even after the pandemic, but I have young children, I have not been on a dance floor in many years. (laughs) And it feels so great. I spent basically my 20s on a dance floor. And it, it was like, my body woke up. And I'm wondering, you spent years living in Montreal, working as a DJ to make an income that would not be clawed back by your label. What did you learn about life from the dance floor? Well, you know, it became my life. The dance floor became my life back then. And just being in the club and just the culture around it, I realized it was so such a rich, detailed, artistic community when it comes to dance music especially in Montreal. And I think one thing I learned from it is when we get together in the club, it is a really important human experience. One of the things I had been dreaming of doing for so long when I was writing this book, I was like, I need to throw a big party and play as many very cathartic songs as possible and try (laughs) and bring this kind of positivity and optimism to as many people as I could. Yes. You know, all the songs that came out when we were locked down, you know, I wanted to play that. Yeah. Just getting back to those kind of like old classics too, that you want to just hear in a big room. That was the feeling. You played Kate Bush. Yes. Yes. See, that's another thing that I love about DJing is that you can really tap into the zeitgeist at any given moment, you know? So it's like exactly what I would want to hear right now after it was talking about Kate Bush again. It's such a great socio-cultural device, DJing and the dance floor. You get to be a part of the the conversation. That's another thing that I love. 
as a nerdy person who's just trying to find how they fit in the world, I realized that I really liked being a DJ because, you know, I get to be a part of the party, but I don't have to be talking to people. I don't have to like put myself out there in that way. It's this way of just giving the people what they want and just being social without having to communicate. That is so true. I never thought about that as a DJ, that you're like a conduit and there is a conversation, as you said, rather than you being the performer and all eyes on you. It's like, I'm going to bring you some music and get that immediate response that you like literally can see right in front of you. You just see people respond with their bodies. Yeah, it's so much fun. I mean, that's the thing about DJing that I learned in Montreal for sure is that it's just important to manage the vibe. (laughs) To me, it's like a bonsai tree. You know, you're like, pruning the party you know that's what i that's what i feel like it is it's like this really delicate thing and it's like oh you need this much water and it's like don't want to cut too too far you know like that's the way i see it mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a science it's a science yeah, I, i'm i'm sure so i also want to ask you you started being a professional performer when you were still basically a kid you know 18 years old and you actually do talk about this a lot in your book but i wonder If you can describe for me, like the level of respect that you had back then that you've earned over the years. And it's just an interesting topic to me because when I was young and interviewing you, I felt like a lot of things about me, people would make assumptions and I just felt no respect, you know, being like a VJ for much music, you must automatically be a superficial person, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But you've had such longevity. And I wonder, like, what was your relationship with having respect or not having it throughout the years? Yeah, I think when I was first starting out, I felt like I had more respect outside of my hometown than I did there. You know, like I felt like the local scene didn't understand why it was me that was being successful and not them. And it's taken a long time, but now I had a really great experience with the book launch in Edmonton last week. And Mm -hmm. I I felt so much love and pride. People were so proud of me. It it really was so heartwarming because it's something that I just wanted for so long, you know, and I did, I didn't have it initially, Mm. but yeah, I feel like compared to when I first started, it felt like I was kind of perceived as this oddity, as kind of like a freak show carnival act. You know, look at this guy rap and he's making this freaky music and he's from Edmonton. And like, where's that? You know, and compared to then to now is like I'm perceived as this elder statesman <laughs> who is kind of on the vanguard of left field rap music in Canada. I feel like this book even solidifies that more. I'm really happy about where I am today. So, and I mean, maybe I'm making an assumption with this, but how are you able to take an extremely negative experience in your life, which was this contract, and make it a kind of strength that pushes you forward? And I ask that because I was so impressed when I read that essay. I felt like it was an extreme show of like stepping into your power again. So how were you able to do that? Well, you know, I feel like in my entire life, in my career, I always felt like an outsider. And I've always felt like I was fighting against something and I always had to prove myself. And it just felt like it was just another example of that. I always believed in myself. 
That was the number one thing for me in my career is that when people counted me out or like labels gave up on me and people didn't want to manage me and people kind of left me for dead, I always knew that I had more to give to the world. And I always knew just in my heart that I'm going to create some art that is going to resonate with people. I knew what I was capable of. You know, and I think that's what I want people to really take away from this book. You're capable of more than what you think you are. Because I realized that, yeah, I was able to run my own career better than my label was. Mm -hmm. I was able to create a stronger infrastructure and come back to an even higher place without them. I think a lot of that just stems from believing in myself. You know, I know it sounds like a cliche or something, but it's really true. Like I, I had the strongest self-belief. I knew in my heart of hearts that I had something that was important to share with the world. To pursue that and go even a little bit more deep on it, like what about if people don't have that strong, steadfast belief in themselves and their own abilities like you have always had? How can people give that to themselves? Well, I think one of the, the things that has helped me so much in my career is not listening to you how other people perceive you. I think one of the things that I had to realize is that earlier in my career, it's like, oh, I was really relevant and I was popping. I was really hot in the eyes of the world. And then it became less so. And you have to be able to stay grounded in yourself because your career is going to be like a roller coaster. It's going to be up and down and you have to stay steady with how those changes happen. And I feel like that is something that anyone can do in their life. Not get too high when things are going well, not get too low when things are not doing well. And I think, you know, now that I've got to a point where I feel like I'm at like the apex of my career, I still feel like I have the same mind that I did when I was at rock bottom. And I still want to work like I have nothing. Hmm. That's how I feel. And I feel like people can apply that in their own lives in some way. But yeah, maybe I'm just like really weird. <laughs> Weird in a great way, the best way. <laughs> and if you can imagine yourself at 10 years old and knowing everything that you've gone through since then, is there any advice that you would give to 10-year-old Roly? Yes, yes. Be patient. Back then, I felt like I was a total nerd. Nobody liked me. I was a very lonely boy. I just would play with my video games and I'd just be alone in my mind. But it's funny, that time was really formative for me because that's when I was at my most creative. That was what I learned about creativity and making art is it's cathartic. You know, it makes you feel better. Just, you know, I would go back and be like, stick with it. <laughs> you know, things will get better. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just thinking of a little Broly just makes me get misty. It's just so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Today has been really delightful. It's just been so nice to talk about all this stuff. And I feel like you've been incredibly generous with your book and your time today. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Hannah. It's, a, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much to Rolly Pemberton for being on the show this week. Everyone go get yourself a copy of Bedroom Rapper. It's a really beautiful memoir on a coming of age story, family, love, and hip hop, and stepping into your power. I totally recommend this book. 
I want to shout out my book club at this point. Everyone get a copy of Bedroom Rapper for your own book club. Also, I want to say that Rolly has his own newsletter. You can find it at cadenceweapon.substack.com where you can find out more about his appointment as the Atkinson artist with the Atkinson Foundation, focusing on making art in the spirit of the decent work movement. So this is my last episode for this season. Thank you so much for listening. Everything I do with At the End of the Day, whether it's the newsletter or the podcast, is just about friendship, relationships, learning from others, and hopefully helping you with getting a sense of your own community too while we're at it. Share this podcast with a friend or give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Olivia Trono, who was amazing and a superstar, and me, Hannah Sung. Theme music for this show is a song called Commentators, written by Jeremy Singer and performed by Hank. Thank you so much, Jez, for the usage of your song. At the End of the Day is brought to you by a team, editorial assistant Francis Kim and newsletter editor Laura Hensley. And a huge thank you to everyone who has financially supported our work through our Patreon. You make it all possible. You can subscribe to my newsletter and find our Patreon link at endoftheday.ca. That's E-N-D-O-F-T-H-E-D-A-Y.ca. And this podcast is part of the Media Girlfriends Network. You can find us at mediagirlfriends.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.